Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context. And in this podcast, I'm doing something a little bit different. Due to, let's just say, the current events, they go back actually a few years, I want to talk about my friend, Andy Stanley. I know a lot of people are jumping on this bandwagon right now. You can read endlessly or watch endlessly about people's opinions about what Andy has done and is doing. As a benchmark beginning, I'm not here to pile on. I'm not here to speak disrespectful of a brother in Christ, but I am here because I'm very concerned about the changes I've seen in Andy over the years. Now, my first guest today is Dr. Charlie Boyd. Charlie and I were classmates at Dallas Seminary, and one of the reasons I wanted Charlie to weigh in on this discussion was we went to seminary with Andy, but Charlie kept up a relationship with Andy over the years. Mine is more of an acquaintance with Andy. We've interacted over the years, but Charlie has kept a little closer connection with him. And as we begin these short interviews with subject matter experts and my friends, I want to make an opening comment. My concern with all of this is being clear, not clever. Andy is a marvelous communicator. He has been a master in so many ways of pushing his message and his brand of church forward. But in that attempt, sometimes cleverness overreaches and we're not clear on the gospel. A couple of beginning points on these interviews. Number one, Christian leaders have to be clear. We have to be clear with the gospel. We can't be confusing or parsing or overstress the wrong parts. We have to be crystal clear on the content of the gospel, what it means that Christ lived, died, was buried, resurrected, and for those who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are given the free gift of eternal life. Secondly, when we teach the Bible, we as Christian leaders, we're held to a higher standard. James 3, 1 terrifies me. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing as such you will incur a stricter judgment. When any of us stands up and says, this is the Bible, this is what it says, thus says the Lord, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do, but it's also treacherous because we're saying God said, and people are going to follow that sometimes too easily, sometimes blindly. And there is a sense where every pastor, preacher, teacher must needs be very careful knowing that God is going to hold us to an account. Now, with that, let me introduce Charlie Boyd. Charlie and I were classmates at Dallas Seminary. He came in as a Southern Baptist. He pastored a couple of Baptist churches and eventually landed up in Greenville, South Carolina, where he serves at a fellowship church in Greenville. We've maintained a friendship over the years, and as a number of us said, we got through seminary on Charlie's coattails. He was a straight-A student, excelled in every way, and we always looked up to and respected Charlie. So with that... Wanted some of your thoughts about the conference and Andy in particular, and what you've observed over the almost forty years now—over forty years now—that we've been friends. Yeah, Michael, like you, I go way back with Andy, back to Dallas Seminary days. He and I headed up the Southern Baptist Student Fellowship on campus there. Over the last twenty-five years, I've kept up with Andy, going down to Atlanta at least once a year to grab a lunch with him, and I do consider him one of my best long-distance friends. I have been concerned about the trajectory that Andy has taken for the, really for the past 10 years or so, initially regarding comments that revealed kind of a changing view of the Bible, not really liking to use the term Bible. 
and that's been a concern of mine and some of the other things that have been on the internet over the years. And now, of course, the concern is how the Bible doesn't seem to factor into his thinking about the gay and the trans issues that are causing a great deal of debate and consternation on the internet these days surrounding him. And as I see it, he's kind of created a whole new category from my conversations with him in his most recent message on the subject at North Point, he personally still holds to and teaches a traditional biblical understanding of gender and heterosexual marriage. He doesn't twist scripture to make them say something that they don't say, as a lot of people in the affirming camp do. I mean, he's told me straight out that he's not affirming, to which many in the affirming camp have said he hasn't gone far enough. Mm -hmm. So he personally holds a traditional biblical theological understanding regarding these things. But he's come to the conclusion that it's wrong to expect gay people to change their sexual orientation or to remain celibate. In his words, not mine, he says to expect them to change is not sustainable. And therefore, that being true, we need to make a concession for an undeniable reality. Again, his words, not mine. That proclamation is based on Andy's reasoning rather than on what God says in Scripture, because I can't find anything in Scripture that justifies not doing what God tells us to do because it's just not sustainable. Now, the bottom line of the position, the position being, uh, since it's not possible for a gay person to change, we have to accept it. That doesn't just go against Scripture, but it's rooted in unbelief. I mean, if God calls something sin, then we have to trust that what he says is right and true. And then by his grace and by his spirit, we live obedient to that. It also flies in the face of thousands of formerly gay and trans people who've experienced the power of God working in their lives to change their desires, or for those who still have same-sex attraction, God's given them the ability and the desire to live a celibate life. It's not just that Andy's position counters what he calls the clobber verses, the verses and passages that deal directly with homosexuality, but there's a whole lot of scripture that has to do with following Jesus and living out our faith that I don't know what to do with if you take Andy's position. In other words, in Jesus' call to those who would be his disciples, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And of course, that's true of everyone, straight or gay. And Jesus is drawing a line here. He's saying to follow me, you have to give up self-rule and put yourself under God's rule. And that means that what God says trumps what I think or how I might reason to a certain conclusion. What God says about how I live my life supersedes my desires and my wishes and my wants. That's what it means to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow me. Now, regarding the issue at hand, this has to do with how I experience 
sexual attraction and whether or not that defines me or not. The bottom line question is, who gets to decide my identity? Does God get to decide that, or has he decided that, or do I decide that? God's given me my identity in creation and in Christ, and to refuse God's definition of me by saying it's not sustainable, that's just unbelief and outright refusal to follow Christ. And I ask Andy in the text, how do you teach people who define themselves by their sexual attraction rather than God's creation design, what it means to deny themselves? I mean, if I have sexual urges that run contrary to what God says, are we not commanded to deny those urges? And I asked him a question like that, and I was disappointed he didn't answer the question. He pretty much just ignored it. In this discussion, it kind of harkens back to salvation, sanctification, discipleship, that we sometimes muddle these things together. And you and I've talked about a same-sex attraction is no different than a heterosexual where you or I might say, well, by that definition, I'm a womanizer. Before I was married, before you were married to Karen and I was married to Cindy, I was attracted to single women. And yet once we traded vows before God and man and these witnesses, we said, I'm devoted to Cindy the rest of my life. And that takes self-control and the Holy Spirit's control. So just at a baseline level, how is this any different? Well, it's not any different in the way that you described it, but I think Andy would say it's different in the sense that a heterosexual still can have a fulfilling relationship. A heterosexual man could have a fulfilling relationship in marriage with a woman, whereas a gay man would not be able to have that relationship. But that'd be no different than an adulterous affair. Well, this is how I'm made. I'm made to love women, and God made me that way. And honey, you have to accept that about me. That's who I am. That's my identity. Ergo, I'm going to act out on the way God made me. Right. And so that's, again, the injunction of self-control and Holy Spirit's control. And you mentioned it. If I'm going to follow Christ, I'm no longer self-driven, but I'm serving him. Well, yeah, and I totally agree with you. I'm just saying I think that's part and partial. That's the counter. That's part and partial of how he reasons to his position. Heterosexual males have a way of fulfilling those sexual desires, even though they're still tempted before and after they're married. Yes. A gay man wouldn't have that opportunity. But I think that's part of how he reasons to his position. But there's another one. Like okay. I ran across this the other day, like Ephesians 5.1. Paul says, be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. I mean, be imitators of God. Now he goes on to say, live a life filled with love following the example of Christ who loved us and offered himself for us. So, yeah, it's absolutely true. Imitating God and following Christ's example has to do with loving people, especially people who are far from God or people whose lives are different from us. And I think that would be the way that Andy would understand that verse. But love is not all that Paul has in mind here. He goes on to say in the next verse, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper for saints. In other words, there are no barriers to love, but there are limits to how far you can go in embracing sinful lifestyles that are out of sync with who God is and, 
and who God created us to be in Christ. So that no form of sexual immorality is to be named among God's people. So, like, how do you teach that when you have a position that says, oh, I hold to the scripture. I believe everything the Bible says, but it's just not sustainable for gay and trans people. So <laughs> that's the bottom line. How is it possible to imitate God when we say this is not sustainable to live God's way, especially when Paul follows it, the command with talking specifically about sexual immorality? My point in all this is that if I say I know what the Bible says, but to live that way is not sustainable. If I say that, there's a lot of teaching, Jesus teaching, and a lot of New Testament scriptures you just have to kind of gloss over because there's no way to teach those scriptures and hold to this position. Last thing I'll ask you is you and I discussed at some length the lineup of speakers that were invited to the Unconditional Conference, and we want to be careful in reading the language of the conference and what they are saying, what they aren't saying. Andy was pretty clear this was not the church, but it was sponsored by the church, and you can go down that rabbit trail. But not only were there two ostensibly married gay men, but they were, in my research, they were all affirming, even the counselor and one of the authors, they are very much in the affirming and endorsing an LGBTQ AI plus lifestyle. And I'm scratching my head going, okay, where in any reality is that something good to expose a local church and invited people who have children that are struggling with these issues and somehow the outcome is going to be beneficial? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I do know Andy's heart is for parents. Like he told me that he has a large staff I think maybe 500 staff and maybe 50 or 60 staff who are parents of kids that are coming out gay or trans. And so he has a real heart to help those parents. But I don't know what kind of help married gay speakers would give to parents who are concerned about their children's sexual identities if they hold to a biblical position about those identities. I can't make the two line up and make any sense. I can't make it make any sense. But again, I can't make Andy's basic position that I hold the scripture, right. but it's just not sustainable. Well, so we have to make a concession. I can't make that make sense either. Dr. Charles Boyd, Charlie is the pastor at Greenville Fellowship Church in Greenville, South Carolina. We'll have information in the show notes. You should check on his website, listen to some of his sermons. You'll be ministered to, and I've appreciated your friendship for 40-plus years and counting. 40 years. And thanks for your faithfulness, brother. Keep pressing on, and we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, Michael. Well, from a pastor friend for over 40 years, I want to talk to a scholar friend, Dr. Ron Rhodes. We were at Dallas Seminary at the same time. Ron has gone on to write 
probably close to 100 books. He's a media mogul. He's been on television, on radio, on podcasts, on broadcasts. Ron has also been kind of a go-to for me when I have done media hits. I say, Ron, what are the two or three things I need to know about said topic? He's also bailed me out many times in an apologetic situation where I needed to know something that it's not my wheelhouse. So also want to set a little bit of the stage. When the Andy Stanley thing started really coming to a head where you're reading about it in the Christian Post and CT and all these journals, I emailed a few confidants and I said, you know, what am I missing? I don't want to just jump on the pile on Andy train. And Ron wrote an email to me. And in part, this is sort of a a payback because he wrote an email. And one of the things he said to me was, if Christian leaders don't speak out about this kind of egg on our face. So I turned it around and said, all right, Dr. Rhodes, you get a chance to speak out on it. So, uh, (laughs) so Ron, thanks for jumping on the podcast today. So tell me some of your top concerns with unconditional, with where Andy's gone, what's happened to us in this conversation. Well, I want to be fair to begin with, fair to Andy, because he does teach that homosexuality is a sin. The problem that I have is that that statement, that homosexuality is a sin, doesn't line up well with some of the stuff that went on at the conference. I'm referring specifically to two of the featured speakers there who were gay men and were married. And here's the problem. Andy called them followers of Christ. Now, I don't set myself up as anyone's judge, but it seems to me that if you're going to call yourself a follower of Christ, that means that you've got to be obedient to Christ. You can't be a follower of Christ without being obedient. You cannot claim to love Christ unless you obey his commandments. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure that there's many positive qualities about these two men. But Scripture is very clear on this. Homosexuality is a sin. And if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you cannot simply say, I'm going to obey this group of commandments, but this one commandment I'm going to sort of push aside. Now, this kind of relates to something that I told you off air. Do you remember our little discussion about Revelation 2 and 3? In those verses, Jesus is talking to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And in these chapters, Jesus commends specific churches whenever they do something right. But when they do something wrong, he points that out and he tells them they need to repent and get it right. Mm. Among the things that he commends is taking a stand against false teaching. And among the things that he criticizes is churches that fail to challenge false teaching. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus was talking about the church at Thyatira, He criticized them for tolerating a false teaching that led to some of Christ's servants engaging in sexual immorality. Now, the word tolerate is used in that context. Now, Michael, I know that you studied Greek. I don't know if you studied the Greek word for tolerate, but the Greek word for tolerate means leave it alone, disregard it, Mm. just let it be. And so the believers there in this particular church had an attitude that said, Regarding this false teaching and the sexual sin that goes along with it, just leave it alone. Just let it be. Disregard it. It's okay. That was their attitude. Now, what I'm afraid of, Michael, is that the same attitude is in a lot of churches today. And I'm afraid that we see some of this 
in Andy's church, or at least when you have two gay men who claim to be married and followers of Christ, that just seems to me to be a compromise. And so, you know, I love Andy as a brother. I wish him God's very best. I pray God's blessing on his church. But this one issue, I'm sorry. You know, the scriptures are very, very clear. And we must speak on this. One of the reasons why we have to speak on it, Michael, is that it's a public thing. Yeah, It's one thing if this was all taking place behind the scenes with discussions among pastors and Christian leaders. But when you have a very public conference and many people are being told and witnessing this stuff, well, there needs to be some kind of a public response. Make no mistake about it. It needs to be a loving response and a compassionate response, but it has to be a biblical response. And so that's why I'm glad that you're doing this podcast. I just talked with Charlie Boyd, who was also a peer of ours. And one of the things he said in Andy's language was it's an accommodation that he'll acknowledge it's wrong, but it's an accommodation. And I think back to your explanation of tolerance and revelation, if we accommodate any kind of sin, you know, the reformers used to have this thing, characteristic sin. If you're characteristically an adulterer or whatever, that you might not be saved. And that was sort of a a common argument we used to hear. That's sort of passe. Today, it's more misunderstanding fruit, misunderstanding discipleship, misunderstanding sanctification. And you said it. My frustration is, this is a guy, we got the same training. We were taught the 66 books. We were taught it's the very word of God. And my sort of one-trick pony has been, be clear, not clever. And in the attempt to be clever in communication, and he's good. He's very good at communicating. There's a cleverness that transcends clarity. And the Bible says clearly these things are sin. These are wrong. And you you said it, well, if I love you, I'll obey you. And I just scratch my head and go, where's the accommodation somehow have the sanctification exclusion? You don't have to worry about that part of your Christian life. You know, I've always viewed sin as a kind of cancer. Mm. Now, cancer needs to be excised. You got to get rid of it. What happens if you don't get rid of it? Yeah. It grows. It's kill you. You might not even know it's there for a long time, but under the surface, it's doing its thing. And eventually, it's going to grow big enough to where it's going to kill you. And what I'm afraid of is with these theological gymnastics and, you know, the cleverness that he has, that there is a cancer that's infiltrated the church. Many church members don't even recognize it, but it's there. That's why scripture says to get rid of it. You know, one of the things that God hates, and you know this as a former pastor, is partial obedience. God wants total obedience, and we don't compromise on it. Yeah, I began this intro on this podcast with uh, James 3.1. Not many of you become teachers knowing that you will incur a stricter judgment. And that has plagued me, especially the last three or four years of ministry, Ron, because when you stand up and say, thus says the Lord, those are his sheep, you know. They're not Andy's church or my church. It's Christ's church for which he died. Dr. Ron Rhodes, you can find out a plethora of information about him in the show notes. If you're not familiar with Ron, you need to understand what he has accomplished is amazing. And again, books that are accessible to every man on everything from Catholicism to Islam to the next topic coming out. Ron has done the homework 
and he's done it in a accessible way for you and me. So, Ron, thanks for your ministry, and uh, continue to pray Thank great you. blessings on how God uses you, brother. Well, God bless you, brother. Take care. To round out the interviews today, Alan Schliemann is with us. Alan has a unique perspective because he attended the Unconditional Conference, but let me tell you a little bit about him as always. In the show notes, you'll find the information about our guests, but he is part of a ministry called Stand to Reason, and it's a group of sort of a, I would say, consortium of apologetic thinkers. You'll find great interviews and great teaching from Alan on YouTube, but with that, I want to jump right into it. Alan, you attended the conference. You've also written a post on Stand to Reason, or if you follow him on X, you can find a link to it, but give me kind of your three big takeaways and concerns, and then we'll go from there. My three concerns that I talked about, number one was that I thought the conference was really intentional about trying to say, look, we are a theologically neutral conference. They said it wasn't a theological conference. It wasn't a Bible conference. It's meant to be a pastoring or ministering conference. And so we're not there to talk about theology or the Bible verses pertaining to homosexuality or transgenderism. And so even though they pitched it as if it was a theologically neutral conference, the entire conference operated on a hidden premise that suggested, or, or was explicit in some cases, that homosexual sex is morally permissible, that same-sex marriage is an option, or that satisfying transgender ideation is also something that's biblically permissible for someone who's following Jesus. So that they portrayed it as theologically neutral, but it actually wasn't. That's one of my concerns. The second concern was that they advanced kind of like a false dichotomy of how to minister to LGBTQ kids. So they kind of advance this like traditionalist script versus a new script. And the traditionalist script, mm. they kind of characterize as this, you know, very horrible, abusive approach to treating kids. And then they suggested that their script, the new script, is the way to go. And I think that that's a false dichotomy. I think there's actually a third way that I would say is more consistent with what the Bible teaches. So that was a, as a second concern. And then my third concern. Before we jump oh, yeah. to your, before we jump to your, to your third one, let me ask you about that. So, I mean, straw man arguments are fascinating. Was there a, a straw man against this? Is why the traditional view is bad and wrong. Vis a vis, there's great children. I mean, North Point's been known for tremendous ministry to kids with their so-called Orange Conference, I believe. There probably was a component in which they were characterizing this sort of traditional script as a straw man. But in one sense, actually, Michael, I would say that. There are things that the church has done that have been poor decisions when it comes to how we treat people who identify as LGBTQ. So in one sense, okay. I'm okay with them saying, hey, this is not the right approach. We shouldn't be harsh. We should lean into our relationships with our uh, friends and family who identify as LGBTQ. But the problem is that their alternative was to say, well, just love your child, which I'm fine with, you know, just affirm them and encourage them to walk with Jesus, which of course is fine, but never a, there was never any mention about, well, but if they're trying to satisfy same-sex desires or satisfy transgender ideation, that that's sin. There's never that component. And so therefore there's no way to disciple them with sin and temptation and repentance and sanctification. All right. I sorry to interrupt uh, you. Go to your third and then we'll talk a little more. Okay. Yeah, sure. So the third concern I had was that they, I think, wrongly presume that you can divorce how you practically minister to people from your theology. Mm. It was as if you can say, well, here, I'm going to disciple my children or I'm going to disciple people in my youth group who are identifying as LGBTQ, 
on matters pertaining to their sexuality, but we don't need to worry about what the Bible says theologically. We don't need to worry about the verses that speak to same-sex attraction or, or, or these kinds of topics, which to me is doesn't make any sense. It seems to me how you minister is going to be entirely dependent on your theology and on what the Bible says specifically about that. So I know this is a terribly subjective question, but what was being in the conference like? The mood, the atmosphere, you know, you can read an audience. Were they with him? Were they affirming of this uh, lineup of speakers? There was no sense in which I had thought that anyone had any problem with what was being taught there. Now, since coming back, someone did email and say, hey, I was there and I hold a view similar to yours. But at the conference, it was for the most part, everything that was said and done, it seemed like everybody was in favor of it. In one case, I went to a parent panel discussion on parents who have transgender children. And I thought to myself, as these parents speak up and share their stories, I'm sure there's going to be some parent, there must be some parent who thinks that their child's social or hormonal or surgical transition is not something that's biblically permissible. And of the perhaps, I don't know, 40 or so parents that were there, probably 75% of them spoke up. Not a single parent said anything that suggested that they had any problem with that transitioning process. The only thing that was discussed was more like, well, how do I cope with this? It's hard for me to understand. What can I do to support my child? But that there was any problem with it was I I didn't detect anything like that. So honestly, that shocked me the most because I thought that's where we would see some sort of pushback. It's hard for me to grasp. As I talked to my two prior guests on this broadcast, we all went to Dallas Seminary together. Andy was a classmate. So we were all given a foundation of the 66 books of the Bible, had a, a hermeneutic that we kind of fought and died for. You know, when I hear someone teach can I see that Alan's talking from the Bible? If I watch a message, can I? oh, I see where he's getting that. Right. So the foundation was there, and that's been my great conundrum. How can he get to this place? And I, I'm not here to throw any of the bus or be mean, but because of the megaphone of social media, YouTube, a worldwide reach, I thought it was important for some to say, look, you know, this is not in line with Scripture. We're accommodating a sin Am I wrong in that, Alan? No, I know it's precisely my my concern as well. I mean, this is a topic that I uh, write and speak on on a regular basis. I mean, I'm I'm thinking to myself, okay, here's an opportunity that they have with the kind of leverage and influence that they have to encourage a large group of people who are wrestling with these questions and guide them in the right way. And again, this whole false dichotomy is of either you know you're abusive and harsh towards your child, or just love and affirm everything they do. I thought to myself. For 20 years, I've been saying, no, That's it's not just that. There is a third way, and the third way upholds biblical sexual ethics, but still says, but I love you. I am going to walk with you, and I do want to encourage you to do the right thing. And so that perhaps was the most frustrating part to me, because it was as if this third way does not exist, and people like Christopher Yuan and, and Beckett Cook and Rosario yeah. Butterfield and all these people have been talking about it as well. You know, I'm not saying it, I invented this third way, but- um, right. It's just what we look at Scripture and say, this seems to reflect what the Bible teaches. We've had Christopher Yuan on very recently on his holy sexuality. In fact, he's been on the program many times. He's a close friend, as well as Rosaria. It's just interesting how the body of Christ, there's this almost denominational shift over this issue. Mm. And if you don't embrace and accommodate, you're hateful and intolerant. And if you do embrace, then you're, you know, it's almost like a modern liberalism type of thing. 
that the liberal wave is going with the LGBTQI, accommodating, accepting, loving, it's okay, vis-a-vis the rest of us who are over here with you know our King James only almost. It's a striking, <laughs> striking time. And my 40-plus years of doing ministry or being part of serving, it's just mind-boggling how we got here. Yeah. I think about in 2014, I went to a conference by uh, Matthew Vines, who started the Reformation Project. By the way, Matthew was there with me, and we chatted a lot. But back then, he was you know, very openly and overt about the fact that he's trying to change the church's theology. And I mean, obviously, I don't agree with him, but hey, at least fair enough, he's being open and clear about it. What's problematic about what happened at, at North Point is that they attempted to say, we're not trying to change anyone's theology. In fact, they said that repeatedly. And yet, wow. everything they did, every speaker, every facilitator, every volunteer, every resource, every website, every book they sold, all advanced pro-gay theology. And when I asked some of the pro-gay theology leaders that were attending and some of the progressive Christians that were there, because we all you know, chatted and recognized each other, I asked them, I said, hey, is this the kind of conference you want to see in the church? And they said, absolutely. This is exactly what we want to see because it's a it's advancing their cause. It's advancing pro-gay theology, but, you know, Andy Stanley could say, you know, at the conference and even at the sermon the following Sunday, hey, we're not changing anyone's theology. We're not even changing theology. We still uphold what the Bible says. So, he is able to kind of give assurances to the audience that this is nothing different, you know, in terms of what we believe the Bible teaches, but yet same-sex married men were teaching there. You know, David Gushy, who's got a book called Changing Our Mind, who advances pro-gay theology, was teaching there, selling his book. I think it sold out, in fact. So, yeah, that's what's frustrating. Your summary statement about the message he gave on Sunday, which I did listen to, it's just unconscionable that those things can come out of the same mouth. You know, I'd almost rather say I'm jettisoning the Bible's view of these things. We're embracing this than both those exist because, I mean, that's, that's heresy. That's, I mean, I don't like to brandish that word, but that really is heretical teaching to say, thus says the Lord. It's frightening. Mm -hmm. We're going to have links in the show notes about how to find out more about you. I hope we can get you back on the podcast for other topics in the future, not just this sad and frustrating one, but I do think (laughs) it's important for us to at least tell our friends who have the questions, is this okay? Is this really where the church is going? And yet not to be, you know angry or mean or drive a truck over it, but to say, you need to be aware that teaching this is serious business and uh, we will be held accountable. Yeah, that's exactly the right concern. Absolutely. Alan, thanks for, again, your time. And again, more information about him in the show notes. Thanks, Michael. Obviously, we just not even scratched the surface on this issue. It's a big, big issue. My concern, again, I have no overtures of driving over Andy Stanley with a bus, and I have no overtures of being unkind to him, but I do think this is a time for clarity on a much larger scale about human sexuality. As you know from our podcast, we've had Rosaria Butterfield as well as Christopher Yuan on. I highly recommend you spend time with their materials, go back and look at their podcasts, find them on YouTube, because they are offering a clear way of understanding human sexuality, they're arguing against this gender dysphoria and inclusion language, tolerance language in a very clear way. When Bill Clinton was president, he didn't want to address the issue head on in the military, and he made a comment that became a cliche, don't ask, don't tell. 
And I fear we are now seeing the grandchildren of such thinking. We're living in a time where the church and sadly many pastors and leaders are unwilling to say, let's talk about these issues head on. Let's be clear where the scripture is clear. God intended for man and woman, male and female, to become one flesh in marriage. It's a heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong relationship. Until one of us dies, we are one person in Christ. That was his design. That was his intent. The compatibility of the strengths of the man and the strengths of the woman, compensating for the weaknesses and liabilities that each of us has. Two become one. And parenting and thinking and life and plans and money management, all walks of life were to be stewards that reflect God's image. Unfortunately, sin pushes hard. Accommodation pushes hard. And if anything, and in context, we want you to look at the scripture in the context it's written and understand how it applies to your life. The so-called clobber verses are not. They're God's clear instruction on human sexuality, male and female, he created them. Just as much as murder and licentiousness and fornication, immorality, any such sin that's ever listed anywhere in scripture, God calls us to repent. God calls us to follow him, heart, soul, strength, and mind. If God can't change a prideful heart, a lustful heart, a heart that's torn with passion, yes, the sin will always exist. The tension will be there. God's word, God's spirit, God's people. We submit to his word, we ask his spirit for self-control, and we go forward in a life that's wrought with sin, but we live faithfully. We say no to temptation, and we say yes to following Christ. Again, for those of you that are in positions of authority and teaching, study James 3.1. God's going to hold you and me accountable in a very strict way for what we've said to his people. It's pretty terrifying to me, and I hope the tension is palpable for you. At the end of the day, always land clearly on what the scripture says. You will never go wrong. This is Michael Easley in Context. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.